Verse 1, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, well, they have no more wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And then he said to them, now draw some out, take it to the chief steward. So they took it, and when the steward tasted the water that had become wine, he didn't know where it had come from, only the servants knew. The steward called the bridegroom and said to him, what's going on? Everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk, but you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. In Cana of Galilee. So where was Cana? We don't know. Biblical scholars, historians, archaeologists, they have no idea where exactly Canaan is. Now, the tourist industry knows exactly where Cana is. It's in their best interest to take you exactly where these spots are. But we don't know where Cana is. We know that it's in Galilee. And we know that it's in the general vicinity of Capernaum. Other than that, we don't know. But in Cana of Galilee, there was a wedding. Now, in Jewish peasant life, in Galilee, in the time of Jesus, the wedding was the most festive of celebrations. I mean, this was a real party. The whole village was usually invited. It would often last up to seven days. This wasn't just a one-day affair. This was a week, people taking off work to, to, to get together and celebrate love and life with one another. There was a tremendous amount of food, and, and the best food. Most peasants didn't have a lot of animals. They weren't slaughtering cattle and lambs every other day. But when a wedding came around, they pulled all the stops. The that's when they would kill the fatted calf. That's when they would kill that one animal that they had so that the town, the community, could feast together. Copious amounts of wine. Lots of singing and dancing and celebrating. How many people have seen The Fiddler on the Roof? That, that wedding scene just gives you a little bit of a glimpse into what this would have been like. The whole community coming together. We are going to party. You see... The peasants in Galilee, they didn't have Christmas. They didn't have Thanksgiving. They didn't have summer holidays. This was it. The wedding was the big event that people looked forward to in the community. This was the holiday. This was the time when everyone just let everything else go. We are going to have a good time and enjoy life together. That's what's happening. That's what's happening here. We keep reading. There was a wedding. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples were there. Now, why were they there? We just don't know. We don't know whose wedding it was. Now, many believe that it was probably a relative of Jesus, maybe a cousin. Some believe it was a sibling, one of Jesus' siblings. We just don't know. 
what we know is that they were there. That's important to reflect on. Jesus was there. Jesus was participating in this celebration of life. Jesus was dancing. Jesus was eating. Jesus was drinking wine. Jesus was having a good time with family and friends and his community. I grew up not imagining Jesus laughing and dancing and drinking wine. And it will do your faith good. It will do your spirituality good to spend time this week. Picture it in your mind. Spend time imagining Jesus like Cyril. He's got the moves. He's laughing. He's having a good time. He's drinking a bit of wine. Now, I don't think Jesus ever got drunk. But I think there is no question that Jesus drank wine and once in a while got just a little glow. How many of you are thinking, how dare you say that? I'm telling you, Jesus, there was an accusation, an allegation circulating around that he was a drunk. Now, rumors usually are established in half-truths, partial truths, right? Where were these religious leaders getting this? Well, without question, Jesus was at parties where wine was being consumed. And without question, people saw Jesus with wine in hand, enjoying. Now, Some people interpret that to mean every night, let's drink wine like Jesus did, right? Have you ever... I have a few friends. In university, I had a friend who it was like every night. Jesus, turn the water into wine, boys. Let's go out drinking. Let's celebrate like it's a Jewish wedding. I was like, but that's the point, Jake. It's not a Jewish wedding. It's Tuesday night and I have an exam tomorrow. You see, in everything a season... There's a time for everything. And Jesus was a discerning person who was grounded in the divine rhythm. And not every night is the time to be celebrating and partying and dancing and singing. You know, some people talk about that. Freedom in Christ. Freedom in Christ means I get, hey, if I want a drink, I can have a drink. Actually, freedom in Christ means you get to choose whether you have a drink or not. Some people, they come home from work, have a drink. Wait, do you have the freedom not to have that drink? That's freedom in Christ. When you actually have the ability to choose. You know, when you're going out for dessert, everyone's having pie, dessert. Well, I'm going to have pie. Do you have the freedom not to have that pie? You know, it's quick, you know, easy to point out, oh, alcohol's bad. What about your sugar addiction? Do you have the freedom to enjoy that sugar or not to enjoy that sugar? That's freedom in Christ, that you have the power to choose. All right, this, was, this wasn't really a part of this. We've got to get back into the story. Jesus. Jesus is in tune with the divine rhythm, and there is a time to party. The only way we know, (laughs) the only way we really know when there's a time to sacrifice, there's a time for self-discipline, there's a time for abstinence, and there's a time to partake. But it's only the Spirit of God that knows. And whether you are abstaining or partaking, 
based on your ego intuition, your ego preference, abstinence can be just as much of an ego thing that separates you from the presence of God as much as partaking in too much wine, right? There's a tremendous amount of pride. I, I mean, I grew up in a church where there was a tremendous amount of pride, and we, we don't drink. In fact, we had Wednesday night prayer meetings where people would stand up and give their testimonies, and I could always count on at least seven people standing up. I have Alcohol has not touched my lips for how many years? And everyone would clap. You know what? If you're a recovering alcoholic, that is something to celebrate. But when, you know what else is important to celebrate? Is moderation. Living a life where we're actually in tune with the Spirit of God, and when it's time to celebrate, we celebrate. And when it's time to sacrifice, when it's time for self-discipline, where it's time to actually deny ourselves things that are good things. This isn't just about wine. This could be about anything. How about carbs? Yes, Lord. <laughs> Nothing wrong with having a baked potato once in a while, but sometimes the Spirit of God says, no baked potatoes for a while, Troy. Moving on. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now this is interesting. Why are the servants talking to Mary? They don't go to the steward, they talk to Mary. So this is a, one of the reasons why a lot of people believe that it was probably a relative's wedding, that Mary is involved in the organization, the hosting of this event. Servants go to Mary, and Mary goes to Jesus. Mary says, they've run out of wine, Jesus. And Jesus says to her, Good! I'm glad there's no more wine. There shouldn't have been wine in the first place. What kind of pagan celebration of debauchery is this? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm reading from the sanctimonious grumpy pants version of the Bible. All the other translations of Scripture say something like this. Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? The King James Version, what I grew up with, is this. Woman, what have I to do with thee? How many of you have read this story before and wondered, why is Jesus talking to his mother that way? Anyone? I tried this once as a teenager. <laughs> Troy, go clean your room. Woman, what have I to do with thee? <laughs> it did not go over well. I, I would not recommend that to anyone. Why is it, why is it, and this was my justification, well, why is it wrong for me to speak to you that way? That's how Jesus talked to his mom. It got worse from there. But, and I was even quoting King James Version, which is the only version of Scripture that retains the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture. But nevertheless, a lesson was brought upon me by my father. Yeah. Why is Jesus speaking this way to his mother? Well, something's lost in translation, right? We're talking another culture we're talking another language. We're talking 2,000 years. So the, the Greek word for woman is, is gune, or sometimes pronounced yune uh, or junai. Let's just go with gune. And the best contemporary translation probably would be something like madam. Madam. It's a term of, of respect and, and honor. 
Jesus uses this word multiple times to address. In fact, when Jesus is on the cross dying, and there is his mother Mary, heartbroken, he says to her, Gene, woman, madam, behold your son. You see, Joseph is probably gone by this point. In fact, we don't hear about Joseph after Jesus' childhood. He's probably older than Mary and has passed away. So Jesus, as the oldest son, has a responsibility for his mother. And, and in his last moments, he says, Woman, Gune, madam, behold your son, pointing to John, one of his disciples. John, I need you to take care of my mother. This is not a disrespectful moment, is it? This is a moment of great love and honor and respect. When Jesus, the, after the resurrection, he runs into Mary Magdalene in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and she is weeping, she is brokenhearted, grieving the loss of Jesus, and, and the risen Christ comes to her and says, Woman, Gune, madam, why are you weeping? So this isn't, Jesus isn't being rude to his mother here. Jesus is, is really just saying, Mom, you're always, you're always trying to, you know, forever the hostess, always trying to solve everyone's problems. We were responsible for the chairs and lights, but the Joneses were responsible for the wine, sort of thing, you know? Why is this our deal? Mary doesn't even engage. Mary pulls rank here, the mother card. She doesn't even address him. He's like, these are our friends, or maybe these are even our family members. We need to help them. She doesn't even go there. She just, she knows Jesus cares about people. Jesus is going to do something. She doesn't even engage him. She just says to the servants, do what he tells you to do. And then she's gone, right? That's a mother move, isn't it? You're like, okay, all right. So what does Jesus do? Well, nobody's expecting this. Nobody's expecting this. This is where the story gets even more interesting. Oh, I didn't talk about my hour has not yet come. That's an interesting thing that Jesus says there in that. So what does this have to do with you and I, Mom? Mine hour has not yet come. Why does Jesus say that? Well, that is a phrase that routinely appears in the Gospel of John. In fact, about two years later, the same time of year, the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus' brothers are going up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. In the temple. And they are inviting their brother Jesus to come along, but they're mocking him. They're saying, come on, you're doing all these miracles. You think you're the rabbi. You think you're all that. Well, let's go to Jerusalem. You can do all your miracles and see what happens. And Jesus' response to them is, my time has not yet come. Well, later on in John chapter 7, we see that Jesus actually does go to Jerusalem, goes to the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles. And as Jesus does, he ends up in the temple and he's teaching And what usually happens when Jesus is teaching is the religious leaders get really angry. And they want to seize him, arrest him. But in verse 30, we read, No one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Later on in in John chapter 8, Jesus comes back. He's teaching in the temple again. This time, it's not just the religious leaders. The whole crowd is enraged by what he is saying. They want to seize him and arrest him. But again, verse 30, but no one laid a hand on him because his time, his hour had not yet come. Throughout the Gospel of John, we just keep seeing this phrase. You see, John is writing a story here. The Gospel is a story. It's the story about Jesus And what the gospel writer John is doing here is using the technique of foreshadowing. He's hinting that there is something big coming in this story. His hour has not yet come. What what is that all about? 
What's going to happen when his hour comes? Because there's some amazing things happening. And John keeps hinting, that's nothing compared to the big plot twist coming at the end of this story. So right in the beginning of the story, John chapter 2, that's Jesus' first real story after he is baptized by John. But that, the, John chapter 1 is, it starts with this cosmic perspective about who Jesus is, the Logos. And then it moves to John the Baptist who's introducing Jesus. And in John chapter 2 is really when the story of Jesus begins. And right at the beginning, John inserts this into the story just to get it into our minds. Wait a second. Something big is coming. What's going to happen when his hour comes? And it's not only to make us aware that some, the reader that something big is coming, but to let us know that nobody else knows except Jesus what this means. So it's to put us into the story and help us understand Jesus and some of the ways he responds throughout his public ministry because Jesus is aware of something that nobody else is aware of that's going to happen. Now in John 12, we, we find out what this, this big thing is. Jesus says, I'll just read it for you. About three days before he was crucified, Jesus said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Skip down a bit. He says, Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose, for this hour, is why I came. So later on in the story, we discover that his hour is his death and resurrection. But throughout the story, we don't know that. Okay, moving right along. Mary says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. And that's when things get interesting. When you go to verse 11, John lets us in on the multiple layers of meaning that are happening in this story. Verse, chapter 2, verse 11. And Jesus did this miracle. Jesus did this thing. It was the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So John does not call this Jesus' first miracle. John calls this his first sign. What does John mean by that? Well, what is a sign? Well, here's the first definition of a sign. An object, quality, or event whose presence or occurrence indicates the probable presence or occurrence of something else. So a sign points to something else that exists or that will occur. A sign reveals something about something else. So what is this sign revealing in the Gospel of John? Well, it's revealing what the story of Jesus is about. It's revealing what the message of Jesus is about. The message that he teaches, the message that he embodies, and the message that he offers to us. We call this the Gospel. The good news message of Jesus. So this sign reveals what the gospel is about. Well, what is this sign revealing? Well, the first thing, we back up and we see that this story, this sign is about a wedding. Now, in Judaism and in early Christianity, wedding, marriage, is a very deep and rich metaphor in the Scripture. There's the the marriage covenant between the people of Israel and God. There is the marriage of heaven and earth. There is the mystical marriage union of the individual soul and God's spirit. There is the church that is the bride of Christ, married. So this is a consistent theme in Scripture. And what 
what is being revealed here in the wedding feast, the good news message of Jesus is that that divinity and humanity have become married. They have become one in Christ. But more than that, we are invited to experience this marriage, this oneness of divinity and humanity within our own beings, our own souls. So the good news message is about a wedding, a marriage, a union between the divine and human in Christ, in us. A lot of layers there, right? The next verse. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. This is important symbolism here. Jesus chooses these stone jars that are used for the purification rites of the religion of his day. He transforms what those vessels are about. Religion is about purification rites. What we need to do to become pure, to become clean, to become worthy of God's love, God's acceptance, God's forgiveness, God's presence. These vessels are really a statement, a proclamation that you are not inherently clean, that you are not innately pure and worthy of God's love, God's acceptance, God's presence. Jesus transforms what was used to say who is in and who is out, who belongs, who's clean, who's not, and fills those vessels with a reason to party, with a cause to celebrate, to enjoy God and one another together. That is a very bold and prophetic statement that Jesus is making. He's saying, my spirituality, the spiritual life that I've come to teach you, isn't about you need to jump through a bunch of hoops of religion so that you can experience God's presence. My spirituality, the spiritual life that I'm teaching you, all you need to do is show up. Accept the hospitality of God who's invited you to the party and then partake and join the divine dance. That's what it's about. Moving along, the next thing that this story is about is about abundance. I mean, Jesus doesn't just make some wine. Jesus makes a lot of wine. So there's, there's these six large jars. Some of them hold 20 gallons, some hold 30 gallons. So let's just say on average 25 gallons. That's 100 liters each. And Jesus says, let's fill up six of them. That's 600 liters of wine. Now, there's, we don't know. There still might be three more days left, so don't think that's all for that night. <laughs> like, this is a long, long feast, long celebration. But what is this a sign of? What is it revealing? It's revealing that in the kingdom of God, remember, the kingdom of God is within you. So to be in the kingdom of God is to, is to be consciously responding to divine presence that is within you. When we consciously are living in responsiveness to divine presence, divine spirit, there is always an abundance of what we truly need. There is an unending supply of what we need when we are in tune with divine spirit. Now here's the thing. Often what we think we need is different than what we actually need. What we want is often very different 
what we need. The only way that we can discern what we truly need is to be in tune with our spirits, our souls, our true self, which is in tune with the Spirit of God. Your ego, your pain body, your false self, it thinks it needs a lot of things. And often when we pray and bring our needs to God, it is our ego praying, it is our pain body, it is our false self. I need this and I need this. How dare this happen to me? And, and you know what? You're not in tune. You're not in tune. You're not listening. And the only part of you that can listen to the Spirit of God is your spirit, your soul. Most of your prayer, at least the first, let's say, seven minutes, 20 minutes, I don't know, maybe for some of you, three hours, 40 days, I don't know. That's what Jesus did, right? Significant amount of your prayer should just be listening and trying to tune into your true self, your spirit, your soul, that part of you that is connected to divine spirit. When we bring our needs to God, say your need is for more money. Sometimes you need more money. Sometimes what you need is to develop a better work ethic or to recalibrate your priorities. Only your spirit knows what you truly need, but your ego is just going to focus on maybe the more money. I'll give you an example that happened to me this week. It was, it was fascinating. I'm still processing. I usually don't like to share things while I'm still processing, but I'll let you all in on this. This week, I, was, I, I often get tired. I'm, I'm quite an introvert, which you wouldn't always know from these Sunday mornings, but I'm quite an introvert, and I often just feel tired. Certain kind of uh, activities just expend my energy, and I feel drained, and I feel tired. So one particular day, I'm feeling tired, and so I'm meditating and praying, and I'm like, God, I need more energy. What I need is more energy. To, to fulfill the calling you've placed upon my life. I need more energy. And then it's just that still small voice said, no, you don't. I'm like, what? No, I, I feel tired. I, I feel, no, you don't. You're not tired. What is going on here? So I listened. I listened. And what I discerned was what I needed was not more energy. What I needed was to be set free from this false belief that I bought into quite a while ago that I get tired when I do certain things. And in that moment, a thought came into my heart and mind. It wasn't just an intellectual thought. It was one of those, those ideas that you know, your whole being is connected to. It's called truth. <laughs> your whole being. And this, this truth was this. I am energized. I am renewed. And immediately I felt different. And then I thought... Wait, no, I'm tired. And immediately I felt tired. Oh, okay. I'm still processing what that means. It's not that I am going to have super stamina. I will never need to sleep again, right? I will need, you know. But it clued me into the, we just have all these assumptions about what we think we need. And until we listen and spend time with divine spirit, a lot of the things that we think we need, they're just connected to these false beliefs and assumptions that we have picked up over the years. There's a lot of things that you just assume about yourself, and because you assume them, you feel that way. When you are in the kingdom of God, when you are consciously responding to divine presence, you will always have an abundance of what you truly need. That's what Jesus is revealing in this story. 
And let's go to the last point. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and didn't know where it came from, only the servants knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have had their fill and lost their discerning palate. But you have kept the best wine until now. This sign of Jesus reveals that Christ's intention, the good news message, is to transform the ordinary into the extraordinary. Common, everyday water into rare, beautiful, delicious, valuable wine. Now most of us are common, ordinary people. And you read through the scriptures over and over again. It's not the billionaires, it's not the celebrities, it's not the powerful It is the common, ordinary people that are transformed by the Spirit of God into extraordinary people. And by that I mean people with extraordinary character overflowing with the transformative power of God. I mean, you can take that in several ways and start thinking, I'm going to be special. And that just feeds your ego, right? All of a sudden you think you're amazing because God... It's not what this is about. I mean, the whole point of being transformed into good wine is so that others will enjoy your presence. (laughs) It's for the sake of others more than for you. You know, it's interesting. You are 60 to 65% water. That's what you are. You are water that Christ wants to transform into fine wine. 